Chapter Six of Unicorns. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Soule. Unicorns by James Huneker. Chapter Six. Georges Sand. Quote, Thou large-brained woman and large-hearted man, self-called George Sand. Unquote. Mrs. Browning. Who reads George Sand nowadays? was asked at the time of her centenary. She was born 1804 and died 1876. Paris responded in gallant phrases. She was declared one of the glories of French literature. Nevertheless, we are more interested in the woman, in her psychology, than in her interminable novels. The reason is simple. Her books were built for her day, not to endure. She never created a vital character. Her men and women are bundles of attributes, neither flesh nor blood, nor good red melodrama. She was a wonderful journalist, one is tempted to say the first of her sex, and the first feminist. Mary Wallenstone Goodwin was a shriller propagandist, yet she accomplished more for the cause than her French neighbor, not alone because she didn't smoke big cigars or wear trousers, but on general principles. In a word, Mrs. Goodwin didn't exactly practice what she preached, and George Sand did. For her there was no talk of getting the vote. Her feminism was a romantic revolt, not economic or political rebellion. George Sand should be enshrined as the patron saint of female suffragism. By no means a deep thinker, for she reflected as in a mirror the ideas of the intellectual men she met. She had an enormous vogue. Her reputation was worldwide. We know about and more about her now. Stop. Stop. We know more about her now, thanks to the three volumes recently published by Vladimir Karenin, the pen name of a Russian lady, Madame Karamov, the daughter of Dmitri Stasso. This writer has brought her imposing work, thus far over 1,700 pages, down to 1848, and as much happened in the life of her heroine after that, we may expect at least two more fat volumes. Her curiosity has been insatiable. She has read all the historical and critical literature dealing with sand, she has a first hand from friends and relatives, facts hitherto unpublished, and she is armed with a library of documents. More, she has read and digested the hundred-odd stories of the fecund writer, and actually analyses their plot, writes at length of their characters, and incidentally throws a light on her own intellectual process. Madame Karenine is not a broad critic. She is a painstaking historian. While some tales of sand are worth reading, the Devil's Pool, Letters of a Voyager, even Consuelo. Above all, her autobiography, the rest is a burden to the spirit. Her facility astounds and also discourages. She confesses that with her writing was like the turning on of a water tap and the stream always flowed, a literary hydrant. Awaken her in the night and she could resume her task. She was the centrifugal temperament, hence the resultant shallowness of her work. She had charm, she had style, serene, flowing, also tepid and fatuous, the style detested by Charles Baudelaire, and admired by Turgenev and Renan and Luminet. Baudelaire remarked of this best-seller that she wrote her chefs as if they were letters and posted them. The style culant, praised by bourgeois critics, he abhorred, as it lacked accent, relief, individuality. Quote, she is the prudhomme of immortality, unquote. 
he said, not a bad definition, and she is stupid, heavy, and a chatterer. She loves the proletarian. Stop. Back up. Madame Karenine is not a broad critic. She is painstaking historian. Madame Karenine is not a broad critic. She is a painstaking historian. While some tales of sand are worth reading, The Devil's Pool, Letters of a Voyager, even Consuelo, above all her auto autobiography. Time 3. Madame Karenine is not a broad critic. She is a painstaking historian. While some tales of sand are worth reading, The Devil's Pool, Letters of a Voyager, even Consuelo, above all her autobiography, the rest is a burden to the spirit. Her facility astounds and also discourages. She confesses that with her writing was like the turning on of a water tap, the stream always flowed, a literary hydrant. Awaken her in the night and she could resume her task. She was of the centrifugal temperament, hence the resultant shallowness of her work. She had charm, she had style, serene, flowing, also tepid and fatuous, the style detested by Charles Baudelaire, and admired by Turgenev, and Renan, and Luminet. Baudelaire remarked of this best-seller that she wrote her chef d'oeuvre as if they were letters and posted them. The style colon, praised by bourgeois critics, he abhorred as it lacked accent, relief, individuality. She is the prudhomme of immortality, he said. Not a bad definition. And she is stupid, heavy, and a chatterer. She loves the proletarian, and her sentiment is adapted to the intelligent wife of the concierge and the sentimental harlot, which shows that even such a versatile critic as Baudelaire had his prejudices. The sweetness and nobility of her nature were recognized by all her associates. Nietzsche is no less impolite. She derives from Rousseau, he might have added Byron, also. She is false, artificial, inflated, exaggerated. Her style is of a variegated wallpaper pattern. She betrays her vulgarity and her ambition to expose her generous feelings. She is, like all romantics, a cold, insufferable artist. She wound herself up like a timepiece and wrote. Nietzsche, like his great master, Schopenhauer, was never a worshipper of the irresponsible sex. And her immortality? Père Didon said that her books were more immoral than Zola's, because more insidious, tainted as they are with false ideas and sentiments. Georges Sand immoral? What bathos! How futile her fist-shakings at conventional morality! As well say Marie Corelli or Ida is immoral. This literature of gush and gabble is as dangerous to the morals of our time as the Ibsen plays or Aesop's tape. Fables. Aesop's Fables. Unreality, cheap socialism, and sentiment of the door downtrodden shop of girl. Stop, stop, stop. Unreality, cheap socialism, and sentiment of the downtrodden shop girl are the stigmata of the sand school. 
She has written many memorable pages, many beautiful pages, such masters as Saint-Beuve, Balzac, Delacroix, Flaubert, Balanche, Aina, Dostoevsky, and Turgenev have told us so. Her idyllic stories are of an indubitable charm, but her immorality, like her style, is old-fashioned. There is a dating mark even in immorality, for if, as Ibsen maintained, all truth stale and die after two decades, how much less life may be allowed a lie. Your eternal verities, then, may be as evanescent as last year's mist. Madame Karenine does not belong to the school of moral rehabilitation, so prevalent here and in England. She does not spare her subject, indeed, makes out a worse case than we had supposed. She is not a prude, and if critically she is given to discovering a masterpiece under every bush planted by that indefatigable gardener, Georges Sand, Madame Karenine does not belong to the school of moral rehabilitation, so prevalent here and in England. She does not spare her subject, indeed, makes out a worse case than we had supposed. She is not a prude, and, if critically, she is given to discovering a masterpiece under every bush planted by that indefatigable gardener, Georges Sand, she is quite aware of Georges' flagrant behavior. Madame Karenine does not belong to the school of moral rehabilitation, so prevalent here and in England. She does not spare her subject, indeed makes out a worse case than we had supposed. She is not a prude, and if critically she is given to discovering a masterpiece under every bush planted by that indefatigable, why can't I get that word, indefatigable, indefatigable, bleh, Madame Karenine does not belong to the school of moral rehabilitation, so prevalent here and in England. She does not spare her subject, indeed, makes out a worse case than we had supposed. She is not a prude, and if critically she is given to discovering a masterpiece under every bush planted by that indefatigable gardener, Georges Sand, she is quite aware of Georges' flagrant behavior. The list of lovers is longer than one given by earlier biographers. Dumafis a close observer of the novelist, observes that she had no temperament at all, thus corroborating the early testimony of Ina. This further complicates the problem. She was not, then, a perverse pursuer of young genius, going about seeking whom she could devour and indulging in what Mother Church calls morose delication, a cold devil, a la Félicien Robes. I doubt this. Maternal she was, I once described her as a maternal nymphomaniac, a metaphysical messalina. She presided at numerous artistic ouchecouchements. She was preeminently the critical midwife to many poets, pianists, painters, composers, and thinkers. If she made some of them unhappy, she brought into the life of others much happiness. Matthew Arnold believed in her. So did the Brownings, Elizabeth and Robert. George Eliot admired her. She, too, was row rowing in the same kind of moral galley, but with heavier oars, and through the Sargossian seas of British prudery. So did the Brownings, Elizabeth, and Robert. George Eliot admired her. She, too, was rowing in the same kind of moral galley, but with heavier oars, and through the Sargossian seas of British prudery. 
in contact with the finest minds of her times, George Sand was neither a moral monster nor yet the errant bohemian that legend has fashioned of her. She was a fond mother and a delightful grandmother. She had the feather-bed temperament and soothed masculine nerves exacerbated by the cruel exigencies of art. Jules Laforge would have said of her, Stability, thy name is woman. She died in the odor of domestic sanctity, mourned by her friends and the idol of the literary world. How account for her uprightness of character, her abundant virtues, save one? She was as true as the compass to her friends, to her family. Her family. Bah! How account for her uprightness of character, her abundant virtues, save one? She was as true as the compass to her friends and to her family. Either she has been slandered, or else she has an anomaly in the moral world. That. How account for her uprightness of character, her abundant virtues, save one? She was as true as the compass to her friends, to her family. Either she has been slandered, or else she is an anomaly in the moral world. In either case, we need a new transvaluation of morals. She was not made up of the stuff of courtesans. She refused to go to the devil. Like Aspasia, she was an immoralist. As an artist, she could have had social position, but she didn't crave it. She didn't crave notoriety. Paradoxical, ex, parad, paradoxical as it may sound, notoriety was thrust upon her. At Noan, her chateau in Berry, there is usually a conglomeration of queer people, socialists, reformers, crazy dreamers, artists and poets, occasionally working men in their blouses. Of that mystic crew, Matthew Arnold could have repeated his famous, What a set! which he disparagingly uttered about the Shelley Goodwin gatherings. George Sand was a normal woman. She preferred the society of men. With women, she was always on her guard, a cat sleeping with one eye open. Her friendship with Madame Dagu, the elective affinity of Liszt, soon ended. She never summered in soft sapphic seas, nor hankered after poetic Lucadian promontories. She never did approvingly quote the verse of Baudelaire, beginning, Lo, the lesbians, their sterile sex advancing. She was a woman from top to toe, nor did she indulge often in casual gallant adventures. Her affairs were romantic. With the author of Carmen, her spiritual thermometer registered at its lowest. She endured him just eight days. And Merimée is responsible for the tasteless anecdote which he tells as his reason for leaving her. He saw her of a cold morning, making the fire, her head in curl papers, and, a, and attired in an old dressing gown. No passion could survive that shock, and selfish Prosper at once grew frigid. A French expression may suit Georges. She always had her heart en capote, and she was incorrigibly naive. They called it idealism in those days. Witness her affair with Dr. Pegueo in Venice, the first handsome Italian she met and fell in love with, and a doubt that... A French expression may suit Georges. She always had her heart en capote, and she was incorrigibly naive. They called it idealism in those days. Witness her affair with Dr. Cabello in Venice, the first handsome Italian she met and fell in love with, 
and allowed poor sick Alfred de Musset to return to Paris alone. Although she had promised his mother to guard him carefully, he was suffering from an attack of delirium tremens in Venice. He had said of himself, I am not tender, I am excessive. He was. His name, unlike Keats, is writ in absinthe, not water. Nevertheless, you can reread him. But the separation didn't kill him. He was twenty-two, Georges six years older. Their affair struggled about six months. Alfred consoled himself with Rochelle, and many others. He was more poet than artist, more artist than man, and a pretty poor specimen of a man. He wrote the history of his love for Georges. She followed suit. This sphinx of the inkwell was a journalist born. She used her lovers for copy, and for that matter Byron and Goethe did the same. Georges always discoursed of her thirst for the infinite. It was only a species of moral indigestion. Every romance ended in disillusionment. Every romance ended in disillusionment. The one with Chopin lasted the longest, nearly ten years. She, were first, she first met the Pole in 1836, not in 1837, as the Chopinists believe. Liszt introduced them. Later Chopin quarreled with Liszt about her. Chopin did not like her at first. Blue stockings were not to the taste of this conventional man of the world. Yet he succumbed. He died of the Lyons... He died of the liaison itself, rather than from the separation in 1847. Sand divined the genius of Chopin before many of his critical contemporaries. She had the courage and the wisdom to write that one of his tiny preludes contained more genuine music than much of Meyerbeer's. She had the courage and the wisdom to write that one of his tiny preludes contained more genuine music than much of Meyerbeer's mighty triumphing. Oh, shit. <coughs> she had the courage and the wisdom to write that one of his tiny preludes contained more genuine music than much of Meyerbeer's mighty trumpetings, and Meyerbeer ruled the world of music when she said this. The immediate cause of this separation I hinted at in my early study of Chopin. Solange Sand, the daughter of Georges, was a thoroughly perverse girl. She not only flirted with Chopin, seeking to lure him from her mother, truly a Gallic triangle, but she so contrived matters that her mother was forced to allow the intriguing girl to marry her lover, Clessinger, the sculptor. Clessinger. She not only... Bah. Paragraph. The immediate cause of this separation I hinted at in my early study of Chopin. Solange Sand, the daughter of Georges, was thoroughly... Dap. The immediate cause of this separation I hinted at in my early study of Chopin. Solange Sand, the daughter of Georges, was a thoroughly perverse girl. She not only flirted with Chopin, seeking to lure him from her mother, truly a Gallic triangle, but she so contrived matters that her mother was forced to allow the intriguing girl to marry her lover, Clessinger, the sculptor. In knowledge of this, Madame Sand kept from Chopin for a while because she feared that she would side with Solange. The knowledge of this Madame Sand kept from Chopin for a while, because she feared that he would side with Solange. He promptly did so, being furious at the deception. He it was that broke with Georges, possibly aided hereto by her nagging. 
he saw much of Solange and pecuniarily helped her young and unhappy household. He announced by letter to Georges the news that she was a grandmother. They occasionally corresponded. Clessanger did not get on with his mother-in-law. She once boxed his ears. Paragraph. Clessanger did not get along with his mother-in-law. She once boxed his ears. He drank, gambled, and brutally treated Solange. Georges Sand suffered the agony of seeing her daughter's life a duplicate of her own. Her husband, François Casimir de Devant, the debauched country squire, drank, was unfaithful, and beat her bed, but Peter beat her betimes. That. Clessanger did not get on with his mother-in-law. She once boxed his ears. He drank, gambled, and brutally treated Solange. Georges Sands suffered the agony of seeing her daughter's life a duplicate of her own. Her husband, François Casimir du Devant, a debauched country squire, drank, was unfaithful, and beat her betimes. He treated her dogs. He, he treated his dogs better. No wonder she ran away to Paris, there to live with Jules Sandeau. She had married in 1822 and brought her husband 500,000 francs. But rain or shine, joy or sorrow, she did her daily stunt at her desk. She was a journalist and wrote by the sweat of her copious soul. That, but rain or shine, joy or sorrow, she did her daily stunt at her desk. She was a journalist and wrote by the sweat of her copious soul. She was the rare possessor of the will to sit still, as metaphysicians would say. She thought with her nerves and felt with her brain. She was, morally speaking, magnificently disorganized. She was a subtle mixer of praise and poison, and her autobiography is stuffed with falsehoods. She could help she couldn't be, be, be. she couldn't help falsifying facts, for she was an incurable sentimentalist. Ina was cruelly said that women writers write with one eye on the paper and the other on some man. I'll accept the Comtesse Han Han, who had one eye, George Sand wrote with both eyes fixed on a man or men. Charity should cover a multitude of her missteps. In her case, we don't know all. We know too much. Still, I believe she was more sinned against than sinning. Since the fatal day when our earliest answers says, da, start over, da. Since the fatal day when our earliest ancestors left the Garden of Eden, when Adam digged and Eve span, there have been a million things that women were told they shouldn't attempt, that is, not without the penalty of losing their womanliness or interfering with their family duties. But they continued did these same refractory females, to overcome obstacles, leap social hurdles, make mock of antique taboos, and otherwise disport themselves as if they were free individuals and not petticoated with absurd prejudices. They loved, they married, they became mothers. Georges Sand was in the vanguard of this small army of Protestants against the prevailing moral code for woman only. Her unhappy marriage was a blazing bonfire of revolt. The misunderstood, the misunderstood woman at last had her innings. Stand still. 
Sen stood for all that was wicked and hateful in the eyes of law and order. Yet compared with the feminine fiction of our days, Sen's is positively idyllic. She is one parent of the woman movement, unpalpable as her morals may prove to churchgoers. She acted in life what so many of our belligerent ladies urged to do. She is one parent of the woman movement, unpalatable as her morals may prove to churchgoers. She acted in life what so many of our belligerent ladies urge others to do, and never attempt on their own account. George was brave, and George was polyandrous. If she hadn't much temperament, she had the courage to throw her bonnet over the windmill when she saw the man she liked, and if she suffered later, she, being an artist, made a literary asset of these sufferings. She is the true ancestor of the new woman. Her books were considered so immoral by her generation that to be seen reading them was enough to damn a man. Other males, other tales. She dared to live her own life, as the Ibsenites say, and she was the original Ibsen girl, proof before all letters. I haven't the slightest doubt that today she would speak to street crowds urging the vote for women. Why shouldn't women vote? She might be supposed to argue. That she dared to live her own life, as the Ibsenites say, and she was the original Ibsen girl, proof before all letters. I haven't the slightest doubt that today she would speak to street crowds urging the women to vote. Why shouldn't women vote? She might be supposed to argue. There will be less dyspepsia in America when women desert the kitchen for the halls of legislation. Men perforce are better cooks. So, by all means, let women vote. Will it not be an acid test applied to our alleged democratic institutions? Georges Sand believed herself to be a social democrat. She trusted in Pierre Leroux's mysticism, trusted in the philanstery of Fourier, in the doctrines of Saint-Simon, the latter especially because of her intimacy with Franz Liszt. Nevertheless, she might shudder at the emancipation of ideas in our century, and she has a sensitive soul. Modern democracy might prove for her a very delirium of ugliness. She was always aesthetic. She could portray with a tender pen the stammering litany of young caresses, but she couldn't face a fact in her fiction. Her Indians, Lelas and other romantic insurgents against society, are Byronic, Laras and Petticoats. All rose-water and rage, they are as rare in life as black lightning on a blue sky. Her stories are as sad and as ridiculous as a nightcap. George Sand was not beautiful. Edouard Grenier declares that she was short and stout. Her eyes were wonderful, but too close together. Do you recall Ina's phrase, Femme avec l'oeil sombre? Black they were, those eyes, and they reminded Grenier of once of unpolished marble and velvet. Her nose was thick and not overly shapely. She spoke with great simplicity, and her manner was very quiet. With these rather negative physical attractions, she conquered men like Napoleon. Even prim President Thiers tried to kiss her, and with her indignation was epical. He is said to have giggled in a silly way when reproved. It seems incredible. Did you ever see Le Bonnet portrait of this Philistine statement? Bleh. Da! Section 4 
George Sand was not beautiful. <coughs> but George Sand was not beautiful. Edouard Grenier declares that she was short and stout. Her eyes were wonderful, but too close together. Do you recall Ina's phrase, Femme avec l'oeil simple? Black they were, those eyes, and they reminded Grenier of once of unpolished marble and velvet. Her nose was thick and not overly shapely. She spoke with great simplicity, and her manner was very quiet. With these rather negative physical attractions, she conquered men like Napoleon. Even prim President Thiers tried to kiss her, and her indignation was epical. She is said to have giggled in a silly way when reproved. It seems so incredible. Did you, did you ever see La Bonne portrait of this Philistine statement? I cannot say that one. Bah! Georges Sand was not beautiful. Edouard Grenier declares that she was short and stout. Her eyes were wonderful, but a little too close together. Do you recall Ina's phrase, Femme avec l'oeil sombre? Black they were, those eyes and they reminded Grenier once of unpolished marble and velvet. Her nose was thick, and not overly shapely. She spoke with great simplicity, and her manner was very quiet. With these rather negative physical attractions, she conquered men like Napoleon. Even President Thiers tried to kiss her, and her indignation was epical. He is said to have giggled in a silly way when reproved. It seems incredible. Did you ever see Le, the Bonaparte portrait of this Philistine statesman? Did you ever see the Bonaparte portrait of this Philistine statesman? Liszt never wholly yielded to her. Mary May despised her in his chilly fashion. Michel de Bourges treated her rudely. Poor Alfred de Musset, who, when he was short of money, would dine in an obscure tavern and, with a toothpick in his mouth, would stand at the entrance of some fashionable boulevard café, seems to have loved her romantically, the sort of love she craved. What was her attraction? She had brains and magnetism, but that she could have loved all the lovers she is credited with is impossible. There is, to begin at the beginning, Jules Sandeau, who was followed by de Musset, after him the Deluge, Dr. Pagello, who was jilted when he followed her to Paris, Michel de Bourges, Pierre Leroux, Félicien Murphy, Chopin, Mary May, Manceau, and the platonic friendship with Flaubert. This was her sanest friendship, the correspondence proves it. She went to the Magny dinners with Flaubert, Goncourt, Renan, Zola, Turgenev, and Daudet. Her influence on the grumbling giant of Cosset was tonic. It was she who should have written sentimental education. But where is that sly old voluptuary Saint-Beuve, or the elder Dumas, the pasha of many tales, or Liszt, who was her adorer for a brief period, notwithstanding Madame Karenin's denial? She denies the Larue affair, too. Are these all? Who dare say? Dumas-fils carried a bundle of Chopin's letters from Warsaw, and Sand buried them at Nohant. This story, doubted by Dr. Nice, was been corroborated since by Madame Karenine, but a loss for inquisitive critics. 
George was named Lucille Aurore Dupin, and she was descended from a choice chain of rowdy and remotely royal ancestors. In her mature years she became optimistic, proper, matronly. She was a cheerful milch cow for her two children. It is delicious comedy to read the warnings to her son Maurice against actresses. Solange she gave up as hopelessly selfish, wicked for the sheer sake of wickedness, a sort of inverted and evil art for art. Nearly all the facts of the quarrel with Solange are to be found in Sapio. <coughs> Nearly all the facts of the quarrel with Solange are to be found in Sapio Rochebelave's Georges Saint et Safie. After Solange less Clessiger, she formed a literary partnership with the Marquis Alfieri, nephew to the great Italian poet. Soli opened a salon in Paris to which came Gambetta, Jules Ferry, Floquet, Taina. Hervé, Gambita, Henri Fouquier, and Weiss, the critics who describe her as having the curved Arabic nose of her mother and hair cold black. She, too, must write novels. She died at Noan, her mother's old home, in 1899. Maurice Sand, her brother, died ten years earlier. Jules Clarité tells an amusing story about Sand. In 1870, when she was old and full of honors, she went one day to visit the Minister of Instruction. There, being detained in the antechamber, she fell into a pleasant conversation with a well-groomed, decorated old gentleman. After ten minutes' chat, the unknown consulted to his watch and arose, and bowed to Madame Sand. "'If I could always find such a charming companion, I would visit the Ministry often,' he gallantly said, and went away. The novelist called an attendant. "'Who is that amiable gentleman?' she asked. "'Ah, that is Monsieur Jules Sandot of the French Academy.' And here he, her first flame in Paris, inquired the name of the lady. What a lot of head-shaking and moralizing must have ensued. The story is pretty enough to have been written in the candied thunder of Sand herself. De Lensa, author of several rather neglected volumes about musicians, did not like Sand because she was rude to him when introduced by Chopin. He asked her concierge, "'What is Madame properly called? Du Devant?' "'Ah, monsieur, she has many names,' was the reply. "'But it is her various names and not her novels that interest us and will intrigue the attention of posterity.'" End of chapter 6 Recording by Nancy Soule.